from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? Well, if you're anything like me, you spent most of your awake time in 2020 either dealing with the pandemic and all its ramifications, or devouring the news mostly about an election, with writers and broadcasters quoting poll after poll, under the guise of predicting how candidates will fare when the voters' voices are heard. Reality is that most of these news sources are misusing these polls as a form of news entertainment, or maybe a way to stretch and fill their 24 by 7 programming, which of course is designed to keep our attention for as long as possible. Now, once again, we're condemning pollsters for getting it wrong, way wrong. So we've brought back one of the most respected pollsters in the country, Patrick Murray, founding director of Monmouth University's Polling Institute, to give us some perspective. Will he defend pollsters? Hmm, perhaps. Will he apologize? Well, maybe. We'll see. But let me ask you listeners, in this case, can you honestly state how many of your friends or co-workers voted for Trump? And that's just a few dozen. Can you imagine trying to accurately poll a million strangers or a hundred million strangers? Not so easy, especially when it comes to Donald Trump. Sure, news sources and polling institutes need to re-earn our trust. But in reality, we're all going to forget again by the next election. We'll get sucked into the next news outlet's misuse of polls so they can look authoritative. You know, the definition of lunacy is doing the same thing again and again, but expecting a different result. This is Politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. We're here once again with our favorite co-hosts. First, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, author, worldwide lecturer, and beloved Pepperdine professor, Ed Larson. How you doing, Ed? Oh, Bill. And Jane Albrecht, an international trade attorney who represented U.S. interests to high-level government officials in Washington, Europe, Russia, and then some. And Jane has also been involved with several U.S. presidential campaigns. Jane, thanks for joining us again. Always a pleasure, Bill. And now for our guest on the hot seat. Monmouth University is one of the most respected polling institutes in the country. And Monmouth's founding director, Patrick Murray, is back with us again to discuss what happened with polling again in this election. Thanks for coming back with us, Patrick. I see you quoted all over the press, and it's great that our listeners get to hear, well, from the horse's mouth, so to speak. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Good to be with you all. Ed, let's start with you. Last time Patrick was here, we started by asking you if polling was a new thing or did our founders take voters' temperature? And you explained that polling has been around for a good long time. The question this time is a bit harder. Have the polls in the past been an accurate reflection of Election Day results? Modern survey techniques started around the 1930s during the Depression with organizations started by George Gallup and Elmer Roper. They've had a mixed track record. They tended to call wrong those early races. They tended to uh, lean Republican and not call Roosevelt as a winner. They tended to downplay his vote. Then after he was gone, probably my favorite was that amazing election between Dewey and Truman when the press was calling it for Dewey. And indeed, just before the election, Gallup famously declared about polling, we have never claimed infallibility. But next Tuesday, the whole world will be able to see down to the last percentage point how good we are. And then he proceeded to say, Dewey will win strongly. So they did find out down to the last percentage point that they weren't very good. They were in the ballpark. And when you had landslides, such as Eisenhower would run up, they'd get those right, though the numbers wouldn't be very accurate. 
And so it goes. It's a bit of a guessing game. So getting down to this election, Patrick, sorry if your seat is too hot there, but I read the New York Times article by Nate Cohen, and he talked about how the poll's systematic understatement of President Trump's support was very similar to the polling misfire of four years ago and might have exceeded it. So, Patrick, in reality, polling lost some credibility in 2016, then had years of Trump attacking the polls as rigged and corrupt. Now it would at least appear that pollsters, even yours, missed the mark in this election by quite a bit. What is up with that? There's a guy named Donald Trump, I think, is our, our best hypothesis here. And I'll explain why. You're comparing this to 2016. But you have to also remember there were interim elections. There were special elections in 2017, gubernatorial elections in a couple of states. There were midterm elections in 2018, all of which polling did as polling normally does. There's always a margin of error involved in polling. But you actually did pretty well in 18, I believe. We did. We did very well in, in 18. And it wasn't that we were missed it by that much in 2016. We actually missed it by a little bit more here in 2020. There was a consistent polling error. It wasn't like some polls missed it by a lot in these states and others didn't. They were all off in basically one direction. We actually don't have that as much this time around. Look at the range of polls that were out there, and there are people out there trying to capture this shy Trump vote by making up all these methodological tricks, asking people who they thought the rest of their social circle was going to vote for, and then using that as a surrogate for their actually their own vote. Yeah. One of the things, Patrick, you talked about in one of the articles was waiting. Can you explain how that works? Waiting is just the fact that we know that nowadays that we don't get the proper number of people in each category that should be in the electorate. And what we have to do is we have to make an adjustment for this. We've been doing this in polling for years, and this has not been a problem. It's only a problem when the group that you're awaiting say that they are, for example, white men under the age of 40 without a college degree, and you're weighting them to the proper proportion, but the white men in your sample who are under age 40 without a college degree don't have exactly the same type of political leanings as those who you didn't interview, then you end up with an error that the weighting cannot fix because there is something else going on other than those demographic factors that you missed in your polling. This is that idea of the shy Trump vote, is that there are certain types of white male voters under the age of 40 without a college degree who won't talk to pollsters. They are more likely to support Donald Trump, and therefore, that's one of the reasons why the polls may have been off. So tell us a little about how you reach people in general, because I know when I get a call from a phone number that I don't recognize, I don't answer the call, and frankly, probably wouldn't take the time to talk to a pollster. And how do you find people who are actually willing to talk to you? And then how do you take into account that you're only talking to people who are willing to talk to you? It's tough. One of the things since I got into polling over 25 years ago is that our response rates have gone down. People are less willing to pick up the phone. When I started, there was no such thing as cell phones. There was no such thing as caller ID. If your phone rang, you picked it up you know, off the wall because you wanted to know who was on the other side. Or get it to stop ringing. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things was calling from a university-based polling institute, you automatically had instant credibility back then. One of the things that has changed significantly now is not only that people don't want to be bothered and don't pick up the phone, particularly if they don't recognize the number, but we're even doing things by email, all sorts of other methods that we're using to reach out to people, and the response rates are just low. What we need to do is make sure that we have an accurate representation of the sample. And if you can't get the right people into the sample, regardless of what method that you use, that's where the problem lies. 
we have a bigger problem here than just typical polling, the miss on the elections. And we still have to actually figure out what happened with this election. And we won't know it until we actually get the information back from each of these states that we polled in, in terms of who voted and who didn't from our samples. Then we can start matching them up, trying to figure out how much of it was a demographic mix, systematic things that we could fix, and how much of it was something that was inimical to a change in the entire political, social interactions that we have here in the country, that means that polling cannot be quite as accurate as it has been in the past. So that being said, and it's understandable, one of the things that Jane has talked about a number of times on our show is the idea that polling now has to deal with people whose communication method is social media. They don't answer the phone ever. They let everything go to voicemail. Maybe they call back, but texting seems to be their thing. How are you dealing with a whole generation of people whose communication style is filtered in that way? Yeah, well, we are moving to testing out text polls, for example, doing text polling. I mean, the, the key for doing a proper poll, and this is why we've always had concerns about how accurate polls can be in elections, is that you need to know who the population is before you even start polling. And when we're polling an election, we don't know who the population is. We don't know until after they actually have voted. This is different than when you're polling in, say, an election in Sweden or Australia, where everybody votes because they have to. When you say you don't know who the population is, you mean you don't know who is the universe of people who will actually vote in that election? Right. We don't know that. We're taking guesses. I mean, we know the universe of people who are eligible to vote in the election, but we, we know that only about two-thirds of them, even in a high turnout election like we just had, only two-thirds of them will actually show up to vote. The question is, is the one-third that doesn't vote skewed? Or if we go from an election where we had 135 million people four years ago to one where we have near 160 million people in this election, what does that extra 25 million people look like? Because we don't know who they are until after they've shown up. And if they skew in a different direction from what we estimate them to be, then the polls are going to be off. And they're going to be off because they're trying to do something that polls can't do, which is trying to predict the future. And this is something that has always been true. It's nothing to do with current trends. Right. If you go back in the history of polling, there's always been this problem of how you predict what the outcome or who's going to vote in different elections. And, you know, one of the issues that we should consider is really polls do two different things. They survey public opinion and separately from that, they forecast elections. Ed, why do you feel like polls forecast elections? Well, that's what people ask them to do. Yeah. They ask them to serve as a way. We, they draw us into watching television shows and listening to podcasts because they're predicting, they're forecasting what they do. Going back to the introduction here, it's partially because the media misuses these polls. It's kind of like using a fork to eat your soup. Do they really misuse them? They do. They use them as an entertainment method, as a way to look authoritative and giving the listener or reader the impression that they're predicting the future of that election. And that's not what the polls are made for, right, Patrick? Yes. So some of the questions that you're asking about the technical, mechanical aspects of how do we deal with people who are changed the way that they communicate, that's easy peasy stuff, to be honest with you. I mean, we have to think about it. We have to deal with it. The reason why polls have been accurate as we've gotten technically better at doing polling is because 
elections tend to be fairly stable in the last week of an election. So if you poll in the last week, you're not predicting what's going to happen on election day because nothing changed between the time the poll was taken and the election happened. And that's why forecasts are good. If things change very radically, and that happened in 2016, that was one of the key reasons why we found out that polls were wrong. A lot of people changed their mind at the very last minute, literally in the last hours before going to vote. That had a significant impact on why those polls were wrong in 2016. Guess what? If you do a search, and I do these searches all the time whenever we're polling a new election or a different race in a different state, because I want to ask issue questions. You know, the horse race question is one out of 40 questions that I ask in a poll, but it's the one that always gets reported. So when I do a search for issues in that state, I can't find them because almost all of the media hits that I get are who's ahead or who's behind in the polls or who's got more money. So I agree with you, Bill. The media has not taken its proper role in this, has not taken responsibility for us. The forecasters who use our polling data that we provide to them for free to create their models of predictions have not done this well. You have these prediction markets now, and that's the problem. The media itself They don't want to look at the issue questions and report on the issue questions. That's boring. What I want to know is just tell me who's ahead and who's behind. Well, because it's an entertainment medium, clearly. And so, Patrick, Monmouth is the Rolls Royce of pollsters. So I want to talk about some of your results this election. And I'd like to understand from your perspective what happened. And we're going to start with an easy one that you called right, but the numbers were way wrong. The day before the election, Monmouth announced that Biden had a five to seven point lead over Trump in Pennsylvania. Of course, it turned out to be a point at the end. So this is an easy one because you called it right. That just the numbers were off a bit. What happened in Pennsylvania? We don't know the true answer of that. For for example, when I polled Pennsylvania four years ago, I didn't know the answer to that question until months later when we, we got our results back that showed that a lot of our likely voters that we had thrown into this model that polling is not perfect at doing, that a lot of those Hillary Clinton voters that were in our poll stayed home. So we won't know that until we can get our verify who in our poll actually voted, who that didn't talk to us actually voted to see if there was a shy Trump vote there. So we don't know the answer to that. What happened in Florida? South Florida. As the results are coming in on election night, county by county, and I'm looking at those results and saying, that looks pretty close to our poll. And then Miami-Dade came in. And did you guys miss Miami in your polling? We had a significantly higher lead for Joe Biden in that part of the state, particularly polling Latino voters and so forth is very difficult, in, particularly in South Florida. That's where the miss was. We don't have the exact answer. Did you say polling Latino voters in South Florida is difficult? Yes. Why? They're among the most difficult to get to get on the phone. In Patrick's defense here. In terms of the resources that we spend. I've heard Donna Shahela, who is currently a congresswoman from that area, but lost in this election. And she reported that among her base, the turnout was 75%. Among her opponent's base, their turnout was 85%. That accounted for the entire difference in her winning versus losing. So it was turnout. And of course, polls had no way to know that the Cuban vote was going to turn out in such huge numbers. Patrick, before we continue, we're going to take a 30 second break and we'll be right back. It will be On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. So what you gonna do about it? 
the whole idea to this podcast is to try to figure out how much responsibility we want to give to the pollsters and how we want to weigh this kind of information in the future. So what I want to know, Patrick, is there were issues with Florida back in the 2016 election. What were the changes you made in your polling methods between 16 and 20 to take into account the miss that you had four years ago? One of the things that we were looking at was the difference between Cuban voters and Puerto Rican voters and voters of other Latino origins, because we know they vote differently. I mean, there's no such thing as a a monolithic Latino voting bloc. The misses seem to happen most significantly in areas where we had a large Latino vote. So that would be South Florida, that would be Texas. There was also misses in the Texas polls as well. But we didn't miss it as much in Arizona, for example. So we have to look at about why that was different. But that was the areas where we were different. Then the other area, which were the big area that we missed, again, was in rural parts of the Midwest, from Pennsylvania on west. So if you could take the polls that we did and section them out regionally within those states. There are parts of the regions of those states where we were, we were right on the money. And there were other regions within those states where we weren't. And those are the regions that were heavily populated by these two different groups that I'm talking about, either Latino voters in the Southeast or these uh, white working class voters in rural parts of the, of, of the Midwest. Okay. So Patrick, clearly it was evident in this particular case that there were some really tall walls that differentiated voting that was happening in cities and voting that was happening in the rural areas. You probably knew that coming in, right, to this election. So what were the adjustments you made? A little earlier in the program, you were talking about waiting. Now, I always am scared with the concept of waiting because that means we know what we want the poll to say, so then we weight things differently so that the results say what we want. Maybe you can tell us how you weighted cities versus rural areas, and how you might change that in the future? Well, we start with the base of all registered voters. And each of the states that we polled had a registered voter deadline. So we knew who the registered voters are. We knew what their demographics were before we started. That was the key. So we knew what their their party registration was in states that have party registration. We knew what their age, their gender, their race was. We had to ask about education. It's one of the things that we have to provide an estimate for because the voter lists don't provide us with educational attainment. But those are the things that we make sure that that are represented correctly. The problem is that we might have the right proportion of a certain group of voters, but the individuals within that group that we have in our sample, even with waiting, may be different because of a a bigger difference that we're now experiencing in polling with people being willing to take part in polls that the certain type of person might not be able to take part. So we have them represented demographically, but they are skewed because politically, people who don't want to take part in polls in that particular demographic group are more likely to support Donald Trump than they are to support Joe Biden. We're doing this autopsy on the 2020 polls. That is not the big problem that we're facing. The problem is a problem that I've been pointing out all along and others have been pointing out, which is questions that we ask, the things that we do that hold up a mirror to the public on issues that tell us about who we are as a a people. We can't get honest answers to those questions anymore because people are interpreting those questions through a lens of partisanship in a way that they never had before. And I'll give you examples of those questions, which is right now, family finances, are you struggling, stable, or getting ahead? That seems like a straightforward question, right? Nobody's willing to say getting ahead, right? Right. We started seeing over the past few years that that starts correlating more with their partisanship 
than it does with other questions that we ask, such as, have you lost your job? particularly during COVID, you know, is your income level down because of COVID? And people will report that and then answer the question about their general overall financial picture in a way that reflects on what their partisan views are. We even asked a question about, did you plan to take a vacation this year, which is a standard question that we've, you know, pollsters have been asking forever. We usually get about 60% say that they plan to take a vacation every year. And sure enough, we got 60% who said that this time around, except we got a partisan difference this time. There's never a partisan difference on planning to take a vacation. We got 75% of Democrats saying that they plan to take a vacation. Only 45% of Republicans saying that they plan to take a vacation because they knew what the next question was, which is, did you have to cancel it because of COVID? And so what we had is a number of Democrats lying and saying that they were planning to take a vacation so they could blame Donald Trump for having to cancel it. And we had a number of Republicans lying and saying they weren't planning on taking a vacation because they didn't want Donald Trump to get the blame for them having to cancel it. And then when we asked the further question, which is, are you actually taking a vacation this year? Then the partisanship disappeared. So what we're finding is we can't ask these kind of opinion questions of, you know, what do you think? How do you think things are going? You have to ask these more specific behavioral questions to get honest answers. Patrick, let me follow up on what you just said, because you were accusing these people of lying. Now, isn't it possible that they just perceived it differently, that these Democrats said, yeah, I was thinking about a vacation, but I couldn't go because of Trump. And the Republicans just the opposite. That is that it's not really lying. It was just that they actually did remember and perceive it differently. Can I take a stab at that, Patrick? Sure. Patrick, you referred to the shy Trump voter at the top of the show. Clearly, there was a a large number of people who really didn't want to admit out loud that they were planning to vote for Trump. It's kind of like if, if, if I hired you guys to do a survey on where you were going into the markets and asking everybody, how much do you weigh? The chances of you getting honest answers in a question like that, it's pretty challenging. I guess my question that stems from Ed's question is, does this mean that, you know, poor baby polling is difficult and we should feel sorry for you, but we should ignore your polls in the future? Or are you guys going to do something to get your arms around this thing and convince us that by the next election, we can rely on the information we receive? No, I don't. I'm, I'm not asking for any sympathy whatsoever. What I am saying to you folks who are asking these questions about what happened in 2020, and if the answer is Donald Trump, I'm saying to you, then we have a bigger problem that you need to be paying attention to. So in some cases, by focusing so much, uh, obsessing on what happened in the 2020 race, is that you're just playing into that media portrayal of polls that you're grousing about. We have a bigger problem here. If polling can't do the job that it's supposed to do, put elections aside because that's not the job that polling is designed to do. And if we can't get honest answers to those questions, and so Ed, I, you know, you, you're putting people aside, you know, what they, in terms of how they see something, they might filter it a little differently. That's the problem is that they are filtering it in a way that people didn't filter these questions before. So when we're asking trend questions, the trends no longer apply because people are now filtering it through a a lens that they never used before. Here's what I'm worried about, particularly with this shy Trump vote. If that turns out to be a very significant factor in what happened in 2020, what is that that's saying to us is that we've entered an era of, you know, kind of an authoritarianism where people distrust institutions so much because it's not just about distrusting polling. It's about distrusting the media, distrusting government. Polling cannot operate in that kind of environment and be accurate. 
It's not about polling. Polling requires a polity and a, and a social construct where people feel that they can express their opinions about what's going on in the world honestly without facing some type of a downfall because of that. And that's what I'm worried about is that we may have entered a, a situation where we can't poll. You can't poll accurately in an authoritarian country. I think it's a good point you make. I think it's more hyperpartisanship than the authoritarianism. I also think that this distrust in institutions extends to polling companies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think also there's a certain element of the Trump vote that I think Bill's right, that a lot of people don't want to admit they voted for Trump. And secondly, the other part is I think there's a certain percentage of Trump supporters who voted for him because they did want to bring down the institutions. They wanted to destroy things. And polling companies and polls are part of the current institution. So if they lie and they get bad results, basically they like it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you have a presidency for the past four years that have been promoting chaos. This is what I'm concerned about is that if we get to this point where people distrust us enough and not just polls. This is what I'm saying. This is, if this is the, the reason why the polls were off, then the problem isn't polls. The problem is our political culture. It's a bigger problem because if you don't trust polls and you don't trust the media and you don't trust government itself, how can government stand? What does the consent of the governed actually mean? What does public faith in institutions actually mean? Because we might be to the point where we don't have that anymore. If that's why the polling miss was off in 2020, that's a huge problem for the republic. John Adams is, is my big hero of the American Revolution. And the one thing that he did wrong, or he's pointed to as he did wrong, were the Alien and Sedition Acts. But I'm looking at what's going on right now, and I fully understand the motivation of coming in as a new president and being worried about these forces that are working to undermine our system. The other thing that you, you haven't quite touched on that's been happening is for four years, you've had a president who's made lying the norm. Right. And you don't think about that, but it just makes it socially acceptable to not tell the truth. Patrick, I, I do have to say that I can certainly understand how the Donald J. Trump factor could mess up a poll. But that's not the only place where we got polling wrong. Downstate was a real problem. Perfect example was in Iowa. Monmouth University said that Democrat Abby Finkenauer uh, had a 52 to 44 lead over Republican Ashley Hinson. And of course, the results were exactly the opposite. The Republican won. Same thing with Rita Hart held a nine-point lead in your estimates over Miller Meeks, and the exact opposite happened. There were a lot of those in the downstate market. And do you say Trump had something to do with those polls as well? Why did we call the, the House seat so wrong? I think so. I think what we found was, and by the way, those uh, campaigns' internal polls, both Republican and Democrat, also were showing very similar numbers, uh, and not just in, in those races that you mentioned, but across the country. So it wasn't just the public pollsters that were off. The only pollster that seemed to be on was Donald Trump's pollster, according to what he claims. <laughs> so this, is, this was industry-wide. What happened was, if you take these shy Trump voters, and they're going to come out, and we're missing them in the polls, we're also missing them voting straight ticket down ballot. So you just add numbers to everybody down ballot. Patrick, can you explain the difference between the public pollsters and the campaign pollsters obviously do very detailed research and that information during campaigns is extremely prized and confidential. Can you give us a sense for what is the difference between the public pollsters and the presidential campaign pollsters in particular? 
what we do as public pollsters is public record and you, you can go and you can criticize us all you want. The private campaign pollsters love to criticize the public pollsters and say they're wrong and we had it right. But by the way, we're not showing you our data. So you'll just have to trust us on that. Do they poll in much more detail, like down to districts, down to precincts, not just statewide? They poll for whoever their client is. So if they're polling a house race, that's what they're polling the house district. But even presidential polls, they're polling subgroups within states that are important to them to figure out, can we move this group? What kind of message? This is what they're, they're doing is they're asking, here are some messages that we could test which ones are more likely to move our voters out and get them out to vote. You know, one message that they attest that was successful was calling Joe Biden a socialist in Spanish language advertisements for Cubans in South Florida, right? And so these are the kinds of things that they say, how, how effective is this going to be? And their polls tell them that. And then they use some modeling that suggests, okay, how much can we move these folks and, and can we win this election if, if we can do that? So they use multiple modeling when they're doing internally. So you don't know exactly which horse race number is their actual number that they started off with because they asked the horse race question multiple times throughout that poll to see where things are moving. So they might say, oh, we do this, we move it this way. This is what we think the result's going to be. That's one of the problems that we have. Patrick, as a historian, I did want to mention that polling this year is no better or worse than it's ever been. I mean, it just like it thought Alf Landon was going to beat Roosevelt or Dewey was going to beat Truman. You can just go right through the years and this sort of results have always happened. And I'm wondering if it's tied to the historical view going all the way back to the 1930s. Is One problem with public opinion surveys is that a lot of respondents tend to say what they think the pollster wants to hear. And is that just another version of saying the shy Trump voter is that they think they don't want to hear you're voting for Trump? So it's just the old historical problem that they thought the pollsters wanted to hear that they were respectable and therefore voting for Dewey or respectable and not voting for a rabble rouser like Roosevelt. Is it that same sort of thing? I think it's even worse than that. I mean, we have techniques that we use to get around to make sure that, you know, whatever your opinion is, pro or con, it's equally as valid. Donald Trump has changed that equation. When you answer a question about Donald Trump, and that's more than just talking about Dewey or Truman or whoever in the past, is not whether you approve or disapprove of a certain president's job approval, is that when you say you approve or disapprove of Donald Trump, it's a reflection of who you are as a person. That's where we are in society. Donald Trump is now an object of opinion that is well beyond just this distant president. It is actually a reflection of us. In fact, we had a significant number of people who said that they know people who won't talk about supporting Donald Trump because they'll be called racist. Because being supportive of Donald Trump is determinative what your views on race are and whether you are a racist in society, which they know is bad. So yes, Ed, I mean, the, the issue is that we hit this des social desirability problem, which we know polls have a problem with. If we ask something that's a, of a sensitive nature, that it's going to be very difficult to get an honest response. That has not been an issue when we've asked questions in the past about, are you going to go on vacation or what your finances are? But suddenly it's turning into it in the Donald Trump era because Donald Trump himself has now become an object that pollsters have to worry about in terms of getting social desirability bias in the way people answer that question in a way that no other president has before. You know, Patrick, you're doing great here, I have to admit, under some challenging circumstances. 
You know, I think polls to me are like coffee. It's the first thing I seek in the morning, <laughs> and I can't help it. And I'm always going to be following your polls because among pollsters, you guys are the best. So I can't help but ask you about some current event issues because I'd like to know what you're seeing. For example, what do your polls say is happening with the two Senate seats in Georgia now? I don't know because we haven't been polling Georgia. And in fact, I won't be polling Georgia because- What, are you afraid? <laughs> no, the results will be what the results- In fact, Georgia is one of the better states that I uh, that have a better track record in. No, I've, I've been much more concerned about the direction of the republic right now, to be quite frank with you. And this is the job the pollsters should be doing, is measuring those concerns. And that's what I actually have been doing over the past month, is spending my resources on that rather than trying to help you folks who are junkies for horse race questions about who's going to win in Georgia. So that being said, then that feeds right into my next question. Have you asked people, any people, if they truly believe Trump's delusional election fraud claims? I have not asked that in that way, whether you're delusional, but we do find that that three quarters of Republican voters do believe that Joe Biden won only because of fraud, that they have bought into that. That number is, regardless of, of whether that's a, a true number of, of belief in fraud or just simply being on Team Trump, that number is just way, way, way too high for the health of the republic. That's what we need to be concerned about. Patrick Murray, you're a good sport, letting us grill you with all of these questions that I'm sure have been haunting your last month. I appreciate you joining us and for letting us grill you. So clearly, Monmouth and you are trying to do the right thing. And it's going to be some interesting thought that goes into realizing some of the things you just said, like we've got a bigger problem. Yep. Thanks for that. It's a thought-provoking show. Patrick, when people want to follow you, how can they do that? Yes, they can follow me personally on Twitter at Pollster Patrick or at Monmouth Poll for our polling institute or monmouth.edu slash polling for our website where everything that we do is all out there transparently. You can look at our data, our weighting. The whole shebang is right there. Patrick, I do want to say in closing that with your deeper comments about the Republic, you're using polling exactly how it should be used. You're getting beyond simply forecasting an election to looking at what this means and what your findings mean for the health of our republic. Thank you for doing that. My pleasure. Patrick Murray, Monmouth University. We certainly hope that you come back and join us again. And we really do need perspective, like the thought-provoking comments that you gave us today. Thanks again to Ed Larson, Jane Albrecht. Appreciate you coming in today. To our producer, A.J. Mosley. Sound mastering by Steve Rickyberg. Music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. And our executive producer for this episode is Stuart Halpern. Wait, wait, A.J., hold the music for a second. You know... It's like that feeling when the hurricane has left your town and now major cleanup is required. In a weird way, you sort of miss that terribly destructive storm because it was kind of a multi-car pileup on the freeway. It's hard to look away. It's going to be weird waking up in the morning after January 20th, turning on the news again, thinking that we'll see some new outrageous idiotic move our delusionist and chief pulled off today, designed to test our collective dulled sense of decorum. And realizing that the storm is gone, the sun is out again, cleanup may not be exciting, but it's better than a hell of a mess. See you next week, everybody. It will be okay. From Kirkco Media. 
media for your mind.